Warning. This podcast contains graphic descriptions of disturbing moments. These include terrorism, war, torture, and other horrific situations. It also contains audio recorded during distressing moments. Listener discretion is strongly advised. I am what I call from Washington. I have a situation where the American is learned a possible hijack. Our number one is got stabbed. Uh, our person is stabbed. Um, nobody knows who stabbed who, and we, we can't even get up to business class right now because nobody can breathe. Uh, our number one is, is stabbed right now. Okay. Uh, and our number five, our first class passengers, our uh, first class uh, galley flight attendant, and our person is stabbed. And we can't get up to the cockpit. The door won't open. It's not answering. Somebody's stabbed in business class, and um, I think there's mates that we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. Our number one has been stabbed, and our five has been stabbed. Can anybody get up to the cockpit? Can anybody get up to the cockpit? Okay, we can't even get into the cockpit. We don't know who's up there. Is that American 11 trying to call? Buddy, we have some claims, just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are turning to the airport. And uh, who's trying to call me here? American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody moves. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any moves, you'll danger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. United 175, New York. We have some problems over here right now. We might have a hijack over here, two of them. Fuel versus high uh, on an airplane that's been hijacked. And things will go well, and it's not looking good. I just want you to know, I absolutely love you. I want you to do good. So have a good time. Uh, thanks to my parents and everybody. And I just totally love you, and uh, I'll see you later. Bye, babe. Oh my God! Can you look out your window right now? Yeah. Can you can you see God about four thousand feet above five east Europe right now? Looks like he's yeah. I see him. You see God? Look, is he descending for the building also? He's descending really quick too. Yeah. Well, that's twenty five hundred feet now. He just dropped eight hundred feet in like a, like one one sweep. That's, that's another situation. Who, what kind of airplane is that? Can you guys tell? I don't know. I'll read it out in a minute. Another one just hit the building. Wow. Wow. Another one just hit the building. 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 United 93, Cleveland, if you hear the center right then. They got that piece of dark. Keep remaining to the You have the ball, boys. You're going direct to the Langley 090 at 60. Is that where you're going? Uh, affirmative. Uh, that's, what our, uh, that's what our second clearance was. We had an earlier clearance of a vector and an altitude. Quit 25, Roger. John Killer 256, quit 25. John Killer, Flight of three, third man squawking right now. They are direct to the Langley 90 at 60, climbing at 230. Detroit, Roger. 
input 25, contact Giant Killer on 238.1. Copy, 238.1, quick push. Langley command post. This is Huntress with an active air defense scramble for quit 25 and 26. I repeat, an active air defense scramble for quit 2526. Scramble immediately. Time 1324. Authenticate Bravo X ray. Scramble on a heading of 010. Flight level 290. Contact Huntress on frequency 234.6 and backup 364.2. Do all parties uh, acknowledge with initials. Langley Command Post. The direction of protecting the major centers, when you're overhead the major center, being Pittsburgh in this case, you're, you have intercept authority on any traffic in the area, and if, if traffic does not respond to uh, hand signals, divert procedures, anything like that, and they continue to press in a threatening manner towards the major center, you're clear to engage. Hi, baby. I'm, baby, you have to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. I want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. And I'm so sorry, baby. I hope to be able to see your face again, baby. I love you. Bye. We're 56865. We have a... Uh... I believe it is a uh, Boeing 757. Can you see him up there, sir? That's concerned. Uh, it looks like he's rocking his wings. Roger. He's rocking back and forth. We're 56865. I advise you stay away from that aircraft. Go north as fast as you can. United 93, have you got information on that yet? Yeah, he's down. He's down? Yes. When did he land? He did not land. Oh, he's down? Yes. Yeah. Somewhere up northeast of Camp David. Honestly, I just want to let you know I love you, and I'm stuck in this building in New York. There's lots of smoke, and we just wanted you to know that I love you. What is... At number two, I'll tell you right. Maybe there's two of us in the walking. We're not ready to die, but it's getting bad. This is The Terror. I'm Sean Hastings, a history nerd who's been obsessed with terrorism since September 11th, 2001. 20 years ago, a day that should live in infamy changed the world. Americans might come off as self-centered when we say that, and yeah, let's be honest, we are a self-centered nation.
But this 12-episode miniseries is going to show that 9-11 did change the world as we know it. We're going to show what led up to this horrific day, what enabled it to happen. I'm going to drop a mild spoiler and say that events that happen elsewhere can impact you. Something happening in some country you've never heard of can have ripple effects that lead to you or someone you love finding yourself in danger or ending up in a morgue. In our opening episode, we're going to begin the story where it started for most people listening. This isn't really where the story starts, but we figured it would serve well as an opening act. Today, I'm joined by Aram Shabanian, someone whose work I've admired for a long time. How you doing, Aram? Oh, I'm doing pretty well, man. Uh, just hanging in there, getting you know, getting some work done. How you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for, for joining us on The Terror. Yeah, no problem, man. Glad to be here. So, getting started, um, I guess I should just ask you, what was what was your experience on September 11th, 2001? Oh, on September 11th, 2001, I was 10 years old. Um, I was, it was, I think, the fourth day of my fifth grade year, um, and I was sound asleep. My mother walked into my room and woke me up and told me, you have to come out and watch the TV your father just called and said something happened. My father had been in the car on the way to work and heard about it on the radio. And so as soon as he got to work, he didn't have a cell phone. As soon as he got to work, he called my mom and told her. Um, and so she woke me up and I remember walking out just as they were starting to replay the footage of the second plane hitting the, the second tower. Um, and I sat there on the couch for about an hour, just awestruck because I was a nerd back then too. Um, and so I, I studied World War II a lot as a kid, and I'd read about, you know, certain parts of the world. And um, so to see America under attack like that was, was very shocking to me. Um, I remember my mom pacing back and forth on the phone, and then I told her the Pentagon had been hit, and she didn't believe me. She refused to believe it because that was an indication that it was something bigger than just New York City. Um, and then I went to school, and I remember going to school, and... Right as I walked out the door, I remember watching the first tower collapse and thinking that the second tower would be there when I got home. Um, and then when I got home, it wasn't there. And I was too young. I, you know, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. And so I, I was too young to really comprehend New York City as a, as a place. Um, I'd never been there, but I comprehended the buildings of downtown New York as tall, like the buildings in downtown Portland. And my dad worked in downtown Portland. And so, I was able to recognize that a bunch of people's dads weren't coming home that day. You know, dads and moms weren't coming home that day. And uh, that was very upsetting at a young age. Yeah, I was five years old at the time. I was, li I was living in uh, Sandy Springs, Georgia. I, I was in kindergarten. We were like, we were the youngest kids in my school. So I think others were probably like, they probably had like the TV on in the classroom, you know, watching it happen, basically. But for us, they, they didn't show us anything because we were five years old. It was the beginning of the school year. And I don't, I don't remember exactly what that day entailed, but like I didn't know what was going on until I got picked up from school by my mom. And I'll, I'll get more, I'll go more into that in a future episode. Like it was like the following weekend, my dad left the TV on. He was watching the news and he got up to use the bathroom, I guess. He was gone for like a minute. So I'm just like walking around. And I'm looking at the TV screen, and that's when I saw for the first time, I believe it was um, the second plane hitting the second tower. And it was, the TV was muted. I think he meant to turn it off, but he muted it by accident. 
So like I remember silently watching it glide in and boom. And uh that's why we're doing this podcast today. Yeah, and and you know, I'm uh it impacted me in a similar way. I mean, uh, ever since I was a child when something scares me, I I look into it, I research it a lot because I want to know more yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, and so as a kid, 9/11 obviously scared me. Um, every aspect of it from being in the building and not knowing to being on the plane and being used as a weapon, like every aspect of it scared me. And so I started reading about it. Um, but I had to hide it. Um, one thing that's difficult about me researching terrorism, especially in the early days, my father was born in Iran and I have a foreign sounding last name. And so, um, people were difficult to me. Uh, at times, difficult with me at times. Um, I got a lot of grief in high school. People would call me a terrorist. But um, what this meant was I had to hide my research. I had to hide looking into 9-11. And it's only in recent years that I've come out, I guess, and started talking more about it with friends um, because it's become less of a taboo subject, I think. Damn, man, that's rough. Um Especially like back then in the early years, like they somebody sees some dude with curly hair reading about terrorism, they'd make assumptions, right? And especially in my small town, you know, it was oh, yeah, I was the closest thing to somebody from the Middle East they had. I'm Armenian, but they don't know what that is. And when I would yeah. tell them that Armenia was a Christian nation, that would just make them angrier. Um, really, and so yeah, I, I, I discovered at a pretty early age that you can't really like debate your way out of assault. Um, yeah. If they're really intent on assaulting you, they're going to do it. They've so, made their uh, mind. They've made their mind up, and you having a witty response is not going to make them go, oh, I guess I won't hit this guy. Like, no, they're just going to keep doing it, so. Yeah, um, it's just going to, it's just going to make the beat down funnier. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Today we're talking about 9-11. A lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about takes place in, like, the very early hours. So we might as well just start off with the morning. You know, everybody gets up, and they think it's just another Tuesday. You know, everybody except the hijackers. And so all these people, whether it's, like, you got people like uh, Todd Beamer, the guy who ended up saying, let's roll on Flight 93. You got working class people. You've got corporate CEOs. You've got a few famous people. You've got people from all walks of life are going about their day. They're either going to the office in the World Trade Center or they're getting ready to get on a flight. They're about to go home or they're about to travel for work. It's just normal American life. But meanwhile, in the background, you got these 19 guys in different places. Four groups of guys, each one of them is planning to get on a plane. And meanwhile, in Afghanistan, you've got Osama bin Laden and his bodyguards. He's been living there for a while. They're used to austere life with the sheikh, as they call him, or sheikh. I I always pronounce that word wrong. Today, Osama gives them an unusual task. They are to set up a television. There are very few TVs in Afghanistan, so they had to go out and find one. They had to set it up, which is a hell of a lot easier said than done in Afghanistan, of all places, in the 1990s. They're, like, messing around with, like, the satellite dish and the antenna or whatever. The morning goes on. People board their flights. The 19 hijackers are among those boarding the planes. 15 of them are from Saudi Arabia. One is Lebanese. Two of them are from the United Arab Emirates. And one of them is Egyptian. He's the oldest of them, 33 years old. The rest of the hijackers, they're in their early, mid, or late 20s. 
And I gotta say, as a 25-year-old, that kind of blew my fucking mind. Yeah, it's always surprising to me when I hear about these historical figures that are in their early 20s and mid-20s, because um, I was not ready to do anything of that scale when I was... I'm still not ready to fly a plane into a building. I don't think I ever will be. But especially at 25, I, like... Yeah, I was just concentrating on school, you know? Yeah. In a future episode, we're going to go over... We're going to look over these hijackers in greater detail. We're going to examine why is it that 15 of them were Saudis. And um, it's not for the reasons a lot of people will think. The original plan was for the hijacking to be the hijackings to be sort of simultaneous, but like this being the United States, flights got delayed. So two of the planes get delayed when the first two take off, and the first one gets take gets hijacked by a group led by sort of the U.S. based leader of the plot, Mohammed Atta. Of all the hijackers, he's kind of the uh, the person we tend to focus on the most. You know, because he's the leader. Yeah, he, he's sort of the focus. And I think that's um, part of this American tendency to personify conflicts at every level and make them about individual people. You know, uh, it was about going after Saddam Hussein. It was about going after Osama bin Laden. It was about, oh, now it's, you know, well, the, the hijackers, their leader was Mohammed Atta. So none of the other guys had agency because they had a leader. And I think that that really kind of dumbs down the rhetoric around what happened on 9-11 because but there were 18 other people 19 but i'm sure you'll explain why there weren't 20 hijackers at a later time yeah um, it's complicated. So on that day though there were 18 other people dedicated to killing themselves and they weren't doing it because somebody had ordered them to they were doing it because they truly believed that was their destiny you know and that's something that that you see with suicide car bombers in Syria today is that they they don't just do it because they're being ordered to, to attack. They do it because they believe it's their destiny to carry out the suicide attack and that what they're doing is righteous. And if somebody truly believes in their mission, it's pretty hard to stop them. It's harder than if they're, you know, demoralized. And so I think that Muhammad Atta's role, he was more on the technical side. He wasn't like an inspiring necessary leader charismatic leader for the others he was just the attack was he was in charge of it it's not like he was uh you know rousing the troops before battle uh most of them never even saw each other uh prior to the attack and in a future episode we're gonna we're gonna go over why it is that an egyptian would be the guy in charge of the plot why we had 15 saudis two emiratis and one lebanese guy in this mix so when the first plane gets hijacked i mean how would you describe that? What what were people seeing in that plane? I think uh, so. People on the on the first plane had no prior warning about what was happening. They were you know the first ones impacted by the events that day, and so um, the atmosphere in the United States at the time there wasn't a lot of fear of, uh, from terrorism, and the most recent hijackings that had really taken place that had gathered, gathered you know international notoriety were done by Palestinian groups, and they would have the plane land. And then they would say, you know, release these prisoners or we'll blow up the plane. And then they would release the prisoners. Problem solved. And so the 9-11 hijackers were aware of that. They used pepper spray and box cutters to uh, splash the throats of several of the flight attendants and uh, then pepper sprayed the cabin to keep the passengers out. 
But the other thing that they did is they had put together what looked like a bomb, and it wasn't a real bomb, we don't believe. Um, but they had put it together, and they said, we have a bomb, we're going to land the plane, stay in your seats, and nothing bad will happen to you. And so if you've never seen 9-11 before, and you've never seen somebody use an airliner as a weapon before, the only thing you've really seen is them do what I described earlier, so you're inclined to believe that. So a lot of the passengers stayed in their seats, um, but some of them made phone calls um, via airphone to people on the ground, and at the time the airphone would connect to uh, like a phone operations center. And so some of these operators ended up staying on the phone with passengers until the aircraft went into the building. Um, yeah. There was, uh, Betty Ong is a famous flight attendant on Flight 11. Yeah. Who, um, right. She was the one who gave the initial reports that somebody had been stabbed in business class and that there were people in the cockpit. Um, May she rest in peace. Yeah. How did they get the box cutters onto the plane? So, I had flown once before 9-11. Um, it didn't end well. I, I had a seizure on the plane. But, um, <laughs> that's beside, yeah, that's beside the point. Um, that's for another day. Um, but the security system back then was honestly kind of like the honor system. Uh, every airport had their own private security they would contract. And so depending on the economic standing of the airport, they would either have better or worse security guards. Um, and objects like box cutters were allowed on planes, if I recall correctly, because they weren't, it wasn't a weapon. Okay. It might have, it was either allowed on planes or the metal was small enough that the metal detector couldn't pick it up. But either way, you were able to get them on planes, whereas now you absolutely could not. Right. There's no way. Um. So they couldn't have brought, like, guns or ordinary knives or, like, a real no. bomb onto the plane. That's why they had to use box no. cutters and mace. Exactly. Um. But against an unarmed civilian oh, in yeah. an airplane, a box cutter does a lot of damage. And you also have to remember that and you'll go over this in a later episode, but these, these hijackers had backgrounds in combat. They oh, weren't, yeah. They weren't just anybody's. They were, they knew how to fight. Yeah, they were highly trained. A lot of them had real combat experience in actual wars. I mean, ordinary civilians didn't stand a chance. Even most professionals, honestly. Like, if it's, if some random cop is getting ambushed by one of these guys, I hate to say it, but one of those Al-Qaeda dudes has the upper hand. Just with their training. Absolutely. With their training and, again, their belief in their mission. Yeah. The the cop is going to be scared shitless and thinking, why don't I just not do this? Why don't I just leave? The Al-Qaeda guy is like, I'm doing this. Yeah. You know, if I it's, die, it's I die. Totally different. If I, yeah, exactly. So it's a totally different mindset, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, if we win, we win. If I die in the process, I also win. That's exactly. martyrdom. And we'll, we'll, we'll explain the ideology more so in future episodes, but like that is like what's driving the hijackers in that moment. So like, so when they get up, so at first, the, so they just start to just instill fear, basically. They assault random people, they slash random people, including flight attendants, then they kick down the door and they get the, they get the, the pilots, is that correct? That's correct. Um, and the pilots, uh, didn't even have a chance to radio on Mayday. Wow. They were just, um, the last thing they that came from them was they acknowledged an order to turn right uh, from Boston Center. The next thing anybody heard from Flight 11 was a transmission from Muhammad Atta, who believed he was broadcasting oh, yeah. into the cabin of the aircraft. Yeah. Uh, he said, we have some planes, just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are returning to the airport. 
Nobody move. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any moves, you'll endanger yourself in the airplane. Just stay quiet. And so that did a couple things. One, it tells us part of the story that they were telling people to stay in their seats. We're returning to the airport. But the other thing it did on that morning was if you listen to the air traffic controllers, you'll hear them immediately start discussing, did he say we have some planes? Yeah. And they immediately start to realize this might be bigger than one aircraft, but they can't confirm it yet, and nobody wants to think that. It's a weird Freudian slip from Mohammed Atta. It is, yeah. Around the time that Mohammed Atta was making those announcements, uh, Flight 11 began a pretty sharp turn uh, following the Hudson River toward New York City, and the hijackers followed the Hudson as their guide to New York City. Because these weren't guys who could really fly an airliner. They could turn it, and they could fly straight. And as someone who has some piloting experience, I can tell you those are not too difficult to do. Um, and if you have a big thing like the Hudson River to follow, that's pretty easy. And wasn't it also the case, maybe it wasn't all four of them, but at least in one case, one of the planes and they got hijacked, it sort of like kind of descended for a while and then turned around. So like kind of like maybe the like during the when the pilots were getting overtaken, the controls got knocked back a little bit. Yeah, um, well, and, and I, it looked like, it looks kind of like something an inexperienced pilot would do. When you mm. turn an aircraft, you have to, you have to pull back on the, on the stick as well. You have to keep the nose up above the horizon, because the nose has a tendency to dip and then the aircraft will descend. And so, I think he was focusing on turning the aircraft and in the moment didn't realize how much they had descended. I think that's what was going on, um, but there could have been more to it. I'm not really sure. This is around 8.33. Muhammad Atta broadcast a third transmission saying, nobody move, please, we're going back to the airport, don't try any stupid moves. At this point, the aircraft was flying toward New York City. Um, Boston Center alerted the neighboring Cleveland and New York air, uh, air routing uh, control centers, basically. Um, there are these air traffic control centers that control large sectors of airspace. Uh, they alerted them, hey, there's something going on, there's a hijacked aircraft, just so you know it's coming toward your area. And a minute later, Boston Center... Uh, notified Otis National uh, Air National Guard Base at Cape Cod of the hijacking of Flight 11. Um, so in response to that, they, they uh, Air National Guard sent out uh, two pilots to fly F-15s. They started suiting up and walked out to the aircraft and sat in the cockpits on, like, runway alert. Um, these aircraft were outfitted for uh, showing off against the Russians because there was expected to be um, a single Russian bomber approaching the East Coast that day. And so they had outfitted the aircraft with more missiles than normal so they could kind of scare the Russians away. Hmm. Um, because simultaneous to 9-11, this is something a lot of people are not aware of, uh, while the events of 9-11 were taking place in the United States, there was a massive military exercise taking place in Russia, uh, one of the largest they had had since the Soviet Union had collapsed. Um, and it was a very aggressive-looking military exercise it sounds very putin it was yeah exactly very putin yeah so so that is that the reason why on that specific day norad had like a bunch of stuff going on yeah yeah there was a bunch of exercises scheduled for that day and, and norad was was doing a lot of training um and uh it would later transpire that the first world leader to contact george bush about the events of september 11th was Vladimir Putin, and he did so using the emergency hotline between Washington, D.C. and Moscow. Wow. Essentially, to let Washington, D.C. know, we have no part in this, we are not attacking you, 
we stand with you and we're canceling our military exercise. Wow. Uh, because I think in that moment, Putin as a new leader realized like, okay, we don't want to, we don't want to mess with that. Like yeah. that's not a good idea right now. So, um, yeah. Especially after the, uh, the apartment bombings a couple of years ago. Right. I think there was an opportunistic side of Putin too, where he saw this as an opportunity to get the United States on, on his side or at least looking the other way toward his operations in Chechnya. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, a lot of people don't know about the, the, uh, this context, but the Russian military activity. Cause like when people talk about military exercises on September 11, 2001, that's almost always step one of a conspiracy theory. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, and then the Illuminati. Exactly. Or worse. Flight 11 gets hijacked. Flight 77 and flight 93 are still delayed. Flight 175 takes off. And it ends up getting hijacked by a group led by Marwan al-Shehi. I mean, we don't need to be too repetitive. I mean, the, the hijackings, would you say they kind of go the same way? Or, or, or are there like some major differences between some of them? They effectively go the same way. Um, the only difference is uh, the, the last two aircraft, um, they're able to get some information out. Mm. Especially Flight 93, they're able to... Um, get a broadcast out, and I believe we'll go over the reason for that later, um, so okay. I don't to spoil anything now. So Flight 175, it gets hijacked, and um, I think we can clearly see that these terrorists, they are really well, they knew what they were doing. They were trained by professionals, terrorist professionals, let's just call it. That's, that's what those Egyptian dudes in Al-Qaeda are, those hardcore trainers at the training camps in Afghanistan. Those guys are professionals at what they do. And the fact that they're saying stuff like, just stay, just stay seated. Don't do anything stupid. Everything's going to be okay. We're going back to the airport. It wasn't, it's, there's more to hijacking than just muscle. You know, there's psychological aspects to it. Exactly. Um, so around the same time Flight 175 is being hijacked, um, Otis Air National Guard Base orders their F-15s to battle stations, um, which is, you know, putting the pilots in the cockpit of the aircraft. Um, and several minutes after that, Flight 93 took off. So Flight 93 was delayed significantly to the, to the extent that it took off after the first aircraft had been hijacked, which is significant later in the story. So we're at, what time is it now? 8-something a.m., September 11th? We're at 8.46. Okay. So yeah, Flight 175 was hijacked around 8.46, um, and at 8.46 and 40 seconds... Flight 11 slammed into the North Tower, Tower 1 of the World Trade Center, between floors 93 and 99. The World Trade Center was designed to withstand a strike from an aircraft, uh, namely because in uh, World War II, a, a B-25 bomber, a twin-engine bomber, had, in the fog, flown into the Empire State Building, and it actually traveled inside in one end of the building and out the other. Um, without bringing the building down or anything. The World Trade Center was designed to withstand an impact from a Boeing 707. Um, the 757 is is heavier, faster, and these aircraft were set for cross-country flights, so they were carrying a lot of fuel. That's very um, important. It's extremely important, yeah. That, and so there, the fuel, however, alone wouldn't have been able to cause significant damage to the building because the the building had fireproofing, fireproof cladding on all the important structures. Oh. However, 
the impact of the aircraft into the building blew the cladding off of all of the beams, oh. exposing them directly to the fire. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot easier to find footage of the second plane hitting the second tower, because, like, nobody nobody expected this to happen. Nobody expects a f- big-ass plane to fly into the biggest building in your city. Nobody expects that to happen. These days, there'd be a, a webcam or something that caught it. Yeah. That caught the first one, but... But it was really luck that there was that there's any video of the first impact, and there was a film crew embedded with the FDNY that day, yeah, uh, shooting a documentary about them, and they just happened to hear the plane and pan up, and yeah, that the cam they just footage turned the camera up, and they see that it's like you see the plane right before it hits the building, and you just, you hear them saying "holy" when they they see right. the explosion, and I mean. The plane is so big, like you said, that like multiple floors get immediately obliterated and pieces of the building and the plane itself go. How far did all that stuff travel? It was really far, right? It traveled blocks. Holy um, the Port Authority officers and NYPD officers who arrived on the scene immediately afterward, they the papers were still raining down from the building. There was debris raining down and there was one officer who found... Uh, landing gear from an aircraft on the street and he immediately started cordoning it off with tape now that doesn't matter because later on the world trade center would collapse yeah right but at the time he was just working essentially on autopilot pilot right he saw there's evidence there this looks like terrorism i need to cordon this off um so to certain people it was clear what had happened yeah to other people it wasn't and that's where we get a lot of these conspiracy theories where people will say well look Here's this footage of people reacting to the first plane going into the first tower, and they say, oh my god, I just heard a bomb. And it's, yeah, I'm sure they said that. Because who's going to say, oh my god, I just heard a Boeing 767 crashing into World Trade Center Tower 1. Yeah. That's kind of specific. Yeah. You know, so you're going to say it sounded like a bomb went off. Yeah, something Um, exploded. Something exploded, right. Yeah. And so, like, there's an F- so, like, in one of the buildings nearby, there was an an FBI and a CIA office, right? Yeah, in World yeah. Trade Center Seven, it yeah. was the oh, federal uh, headquarters uh, for New York City. And so, this would also play a role later when towers collapsed on Building Seven, and then Building Seven itself collapsed. One of the conspiracy theories is that you can hear gunfire from inside the rubble of the World Trade Center, and you could it was uh, ammunition inside the federal part of oh. World Trade Center Seven burning off and cooking off. So that's, that's, there is video of, you can hear gunfire, but it's not gunfire, it's just bullets cooking off. I'm just uh, imagining of some conspiracy theorist saying, see, here's the proof that the, that the government did it. They blew up their own building last. Right. And then they went through and shot the survivors? Like, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that would have accomplished, but, um. Yeah. So the reason I bring up the CIA office, because I read in, in one of the books I read researching for this podcast, uh, I think if I remember correctly, it was Director at S by Steve. Yeah, Director at S by Steve Cole. Um, one of the guys at the CIA office at the World Trade Center, he calls headquarters and he's like, y'all aren't going to believe what we just saw. <laughs> and he's like, we got this uh, situation going on and they're just and people at headquarters are like, yeah, evacuate now. Get out of there. And immediately people in the CIA, especially counterterrorism, people are like, this looks a lot like terrorism. Right. Um, and to some of those familiar with Osama bin Laden, they immediately suspected him. 
because it looked like the kind of grand, extravagant attack that he would like to stage. That he was that he was by that point famous for staging. Um, yeah. Speaking of Osama bin Laden, so now we turn back to those uh, those guys in Afghanistan watching TV, and earlier Osama bin Laden's followers, you know, with the exception of a small few number, a small few, nobody knew about. The rank and file in Al Qaeda didn't know what was going on. It, it was kept that secret. So Bin Laden's chilling with his dudes as he usually would. He was kind of a bro dude. That's just sort of the, we don't talk about that enough. I don't think. Anyway, so like he's hanging out with his guys. They see the first plane hit the first tower. And they're just like, oh, my God, this is amazing for us. But Bin Laden's like, calm down, calm down. There's more to come. He, he's sort of relishing just like knowing something that the other guys don't. Right, and, um, I mean, he, he kept it secret to the extent that it's, the Taliban wasn't aware that it was going to happen. You know, which is, for lack of a better term, kind of a dick move. Yeah, like, really impactful. I don't know, them. if I invite you over for a sleepover, please don't shoot at the police from the front of my house. Like, <laughs> and I think that's just like a basic respect thing, you know, because now the police are coming to my house, and they don't care that I didn't shoot at you, or yeah. shoot at them. They're just mad. That's a great analogy, yeah. man. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I mean, we've already kind of gone over the next bullet point, how, like, people, they see what's happening, and just all over the world, people are shocked. All over the world, people are, they're hearing about it, they turn on the TV, and they're like, oh my god, the North Tower is burning. And you got this giant, giant, the smoke cloud was, like, bigger than the building itself. Because, like, all that burning jet fuel flooding down the elevator. I mean, it's not just the floors that got hit that are on the fire. The whole building is burning from the inside out. It, maybe not immediately, but as the day went on, as the hours went by, that's what ended up happening. Right. And, like, that burning jet fuel, I mean, it goes down the elevator shafts. I mean, it caused substantial damage to every floor, even the lobby. Like, that documentary where those those French dudes who were embedded with the firefighters, they had they were just filming a documentary about firefighters. They didn't know 9-11 was going to happen that day. So, like, when you watch the documentary, um, I think it's called 9-11 by the, the Naudet brothers. Yeah. So, they go into the lobby, and it's just extensive damage already. I mean, you've already had the, the jet fuel come down the elevator shaft. Windows are blown out. There are There are people who are burned and dead already on the first floor. The elevators are gone. Now they, the firefighters are realizing, we got to walk up. I mean, how many floors was that building around? How many stories was that? Uh, I'm not sure, uh, but the impact was on like the 93rd to 99th floor. So it was, <sighs> you know. Damn. It pretty, a yeah, hundred floors or more. I mean, it was, I, I, I exhaust myself on like three floors. So, yeah. Um, uh, and there's people that you can see if you watch footage from that day, if you watch any of like the raw footage that's available on YouTube, you'll see random office workers wandering the streets of New York who stop for a moment to tell their stories. And the, the tales of heroism are not infrequent. You know, you see, a, for lack of a better term, a pudgy middle-aged office worker and he stops by the camera and talks about how, yeah, on floor 73, there was a woman in a wheelchair, so we carried her down. Yeah. And it's like, what? 
you know, these are just average New Yorkers, average people who jumped in to help their neighbors and their friends and their coworkers. Um, and, and, and that was pretty common, but, um, with the exception of a small number of people, most people assume this is either is some kind of accident. This is some kind of, I don't know what else to call it other than an ordinary disaster. You know, a plane has flown into a building. There's a fire. We got to go put out that fire. They don't know yet that more planes are coming. Right. Um, and, I mean, to the extent that um, most news stations began breaking in at this point, like you were saying, with news about what had happened, but... They were saying things like, yeah, a plane crashed into the World Trade Center, it was a small private plane, or there's a fire at the World Trade Center, things of that nature. Nobody really believed that it was a full-size jet airliner that had struck the tower and that it had done so deliberately. Uh, like you said, everybody thought it was an accident. And around this time, CNN, uh, on CNN, their, their ticker appeared at the bottom of the screen. They didn't have a ticker prior to 9-11, except during crises, um, and the ticker has never gone away. Wow. Well, that's a fun fact. I, I, I don't even remember a time before the before what you're talking about, man. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's. I remember the ticker for months and months after 9-11. America under attack. You know? Um, yeah. And they would every night have footage from Ground Zero. And, uh... I mean, it's like, it's hard to spoil a historical event that happened 20 years ago. Yeah, it's it's true. Um... So around the time that these news stations are breaking in with footage from the World Trade Center, around 8.50 or so, uh, Flight 77 is hijacked. Um, a minute later, New York City's Amateur Radio Emergency Service Network is activated. So it's a amateur radio network that's designed to assist emergency services in times of a major disaster. Uh, so they can communicate information if cell networks are down, if regular radio networks are down, which they were. There was, uh, eventually later in the day, there was, they would lose signal from the World Trade Center. On top of one of the towers, you'll notice there's a giant radio mast. Oh, yeah, the North Tower. TV, radio, right, TV and radio and emergency communications for the entire city. So when the plane went into the tower, that went dead. And so there's wow. uh, several news stations that the image just froze with the North Tower being hit. Wow. You know, um so Flight 77 is hijacked about uh, 8.50. Um, 8.52, they, uh, Otis Air National Guard Base has scrambled their F-15s, and they're inbound to intercept Flight 11, which they are not aware has already crashed into the World Trade Center. Nobody has really been able to communicate that with them. All they know is, we're going to New York, we have to intercept something. They said it's real world, and so they were they had their afterburners on. You know, They were going as fast as they could in these aircraft. They were cleared to go as fast as they could. Um, and then an F-15, that's pretty damn fast um and were these were, were these jets armed did, did they have like missiles and stuff yes they were armed uh like i said because they were going to go up against the russian bombers oh, so they right. had some, some armament on board um and they were one of the alert um alert bases basically they had aircraft that are on 15 minute alert there weren't very many of those in, in the U.S. at the time. I think there were like five or five to eight bases across the U.S. that were on alert because this was after the Cold War. This was, yeah, know, it was peacetime. We didn't need to have aircraft on alert. Um, and, and I think it's important to distinguish at this point between Air National Guard and United States Air Force. United States Air Force, their mission is not to defend American airspace. 
If there is an intruding aircraft, that's the Air National Guard's job. Um, the Air Force, since they're beholden to the Department of Defense, their aircraft are unarmed, and when they need to arm them, you need to get permission to go to the uh, the armories on the base to arm the aircraft. And that permission has to come from Washington, D.C., right? Now, you can do it anyway, but then D.C. is going to be asking you the next day, why the hell do you authorize? The difference is the Air National Guard answers to the governor. So the next day when the governor says, why did you arm those aircraft? You can tell him, well, to protect the state capitol. And the governor will say, good job. So there's a difference. The Air National Guard had a little bit more leeway. And so um, later in the day, some of the bases would begin arming aircraft on, on their own without orders from command. They would break the locks on the armories and start loading up missiles onto aircraft. At that point, uh, it's understandable. But at, at that point, it was understandable, right. Um, but yeah, that comes later in the day. Uh, at this point, there's just the two Otis Air National Guard F-15s airborne. Um, and they're sent to control, military-controlled airspace off Long Island um, momentarily. But you do hear them in footage from New York City. You'll hear uh, fighter jets flying around the city, and a lot of people were scared because they didn't know if there were, you know, additional aircraft coming in to hit the tower. So, so Flight Seventy Seven it gets hijacked by the group led by Hani Hanjour and Aram. So you said that uh, some some passengers on Flight Seventy Seven managed to reach out to people after it got hijacked. In Flight 11, it was able to reach out. And oh. then a flight, yeah, no, I'm sorry, yeah, Flight 77, um, a passenger named Brian Sweeney uh, called his wife um, and left her a voicemail and told her basically goodbye um, wow. at about 8.59. Um, that was after the aircraft had turned toward New York and started to descend. Um, and around 8.55, President Bush had arrived at uh, an elementary school in Sarasota, Florida. Mm. Um, as he was walking into the elementary school, Condoleezza Rice walked up to him and told him, a twin-engine aircraft or a commercial aircraft has struck the World Trade Center. That's all we know right now, Mr. President. Right. Um, and Bush responded to something to the effect of, you know, what a tragedy. The pilot must have had a heart attack. They think it's like a, a beach craft or something at this point, you know. Yeah. Uh, they they haven't seen the footage yet. Yeah. Um, like, as tempting as it is to make fun of George Bush, like, at, pretty much everybody in America kind of thought the same thing at that at that point, right? Right. And um, yeah, and and I I like to separate the George Bush that came later from the George Bush of September 11th because as much as I have issues with George W. Bush, and as much as I have uh, a lot of disdain for figures like Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, I also recognize that they went through a severely traumatic event on that day. Yeah. Um, and we'll get to that later, exactly what they each went through, but needless to say, it wasn't a simple day for them. They weren't having a good time. So around 9 o'clock, uh, a man named Lee Hansen receives a phone call. It's his second phone call. Um, from his son Peter, who's aboard Flight 175, um, which has also been hijacked by this point. Um, and he says, It's getting bad, Dad. A stewardess has been stabbed. They seem to have knives and mace. They said they have a bomb. It's getting very bad on the plane. Passengers are throwing up and getting sick. Wow. The plane is making jerky movements. I don't think the pilot is flying the plane. I think we are going down. I think they intend to go to Chicago or someplace and fly into a building. So at that point, some of the passengers were aware this was not a normal hijacking. Um, 
even though they had no idea what had happened in New York, they knew something was up. Yeah, damn, that that Uh, quote is just harrowing, man. It is. Um, A minute later, uh, the FAA's New York Center alerted the Air Traffic Control System Command in Virginia. Uh, They said, we have several situations going on here. This is escalating big, big time. We need to get the military involved with us. Um, And so the day was beginning to get very real to certain people. It was more than just a hijacking. It was more than just a single plane crash. Certain people were starting to put together pieces that a bigger plot was at hand. But these people weren't in a position to alert anybody. Mm. They were in these air traffic control centers and they were... I mean, this is a matter of 10 minutes, 20 minutes between some of these events. There's no time to alert anybody. Yeah. There's no time for anybody to react. And there were like a bunch of planes that also like weren't responding at this point. So like we didn't yeah. know which ones had been hijacked and which ones hadn't been. Right. I mean, there were there were thousands of aircraft in the airspace over the U.S. and coming to the U.S. So um, to vet each one of them, you know, especially when these aircraft would turn off their transponders. So if you ever looked at a radar screen, um, primary radar can pick up certain things with an aircraft. It broadcasts out a radar wave, you know, a, a radio wave. Radio wave comes back. You can tell essentially how high the aircraft is sometimes. You can tell sort of which direction it's heading in and kind of its speed. But that's about it. The transponder tells you everything else, what kind of aircraft it is, how big it is, you know, exact location, blah, blah, blah. So when they turn the transponder off, not only is it harder to track them, uh, they disappear on the radar screen, essentially. I mean, they disappear into the mess, into the, into the, into the background. Wow. With all these other aircraft saying, look at me, look at me, they're kind of hiding in the background. Um, and that was a deliberate move on the part of the hijackers, was to hide the aircraft by turning off the transponders. Um, so... About a minute or two after the FAA or New York Center said they needed the military to be involved in the situation, Flight 175 crashed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center um, between floors 77 and 85, so a little bit lower than the first tower that was struck. And I believe that had something to do with why the South Tower would collapse first, because there was more building above where the impact had taken place. And the impact was at more of an angle. At this point, every TV camera in New York City is aimed right at, you know, the World Trade Center. Because everybody's... Right. Everybody was watching. Yeah. Especially in New York, everybody was watching. And and um, they all, I mean, there's dozens of videos of the impact, you know, from every angle you can imagine. Yeah. Um. And at this point, a lot of people started to put things together that perhaps something terroristic was happening. Uh, a lot of journalists started saying things to that effect. Yeah. Um, a journalist named Jim Ryan uh, went on the air and said, I think a second plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. I think we have a terrorist attack, a terrorist act of proportions that we cannot begin to imagine at this juncture. So, two minutes after Flight 175 hit the South Tower, um, George W. Bush was reading um, a book to children in Florida. Um, My Pet Goat is the name of the Pet Goat is the name of the book. And his chief of staff, Andrew Card, walked in and, and, and whispered to him, a second plane hit, hit the second tower. America is under attack. Yeah. Um, he says that he needed to figure out, he knew he didn't have a lot of time to talk to the president, but he needed to get, he needed to stress to him how serious the situation was. Yeah. Um, 
And Bush has been criticized, and he was criticized a lot afterward, after 9-11, for his reaction to hearing that, that he just kind of sat there and then finished the book with the kids before walking out. Um, and again, not a fan of Bush, but I don't know what people expected him to do. Like, yeah. Go hop in his old Air National Guard plane and fly off toward New York City. Like, it's not... <laughs> he was just going to panic a bunch of children if he ran out of the classroom. So, yeah. I mean, um... Like I've yeah. I've seen the video of that moment that you're talking about when 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 Card leans down and whispers into Bush's ear, and I I've seen that look on Bush's face where like he's he keeps it together, but you can see in his eyes that something is amiss. And it's like right. what what else do you want the president to do? Do you want him to react professionally, or do you want him to freak the f- out like most Americans did that day. Uh, yeah, just imagine how different that day would have been if Andrew Card whispered in his ear and President Bush just holy <laughs> stood up. And did, you know, like imagine if uh, it was Will Ferrell, George Bush. <clears throat> Pass. Right, exactly. Like it's it's. So I think he handled it well, um, as yeah. well as he could have. Um, a minute later, after seeing on TV the explosion of the second tower. Uh, the FAA acted and imposed what's known as a first-tier ground stop, um, which means uh, no aircraft can take off and fly through the airspace of what was decided uh, New York Center, Boston, Cleveland, or Washington Center. So they essentially closed the Northeast to aircraft that were taking off. CNN, around 918, made their first um, reference to a potential terror attack, stating that the FBI is investigating the report of a plane hijacking. And um, at that point, the Associated Press began saying plane was hijacked before crashes. Um, so word had started to leak out from the intelligence agencies and just in general that um, the planes had been hijacked. It wasn't an accident. He, you know, there was no way the second plane was an accident. If you had any doubt in your mind anymore, it was dispelled in that moment. Yeah. Um, around 920, they closed all bridges and tunnels to Manhattan. And that's pretty significant. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happened on 9-11 that was unprecedented in and of itself. And then, I mean, the day itself was huge, but closing off Manhattan while a combat air patrol circles overhead. Shutting, holy shit. Shutting down all air traffic in America. Shutting down all, right, right. Unheard of. Um, that happened at 926. The FAA banned takeoff of all civilian aircraft. It was a national ground stop. Um, at this point, there are still aircraft in the air who have not been ordered to land. They just said no more aircraft can take off because they said, you know, they realized that there were hijackers out there. We don't want any more planes in the air because there could be more hijackers on more planes. Around the same time that all bridges and tunnels were closed to Manhattan, uh, a United Airlines flight dispatcher uh, began receiving, uh, began sending text messages to his, uh, the aircraft under his control. Um, basically like a, old printout message, right, from, from air traffic control. It would display on a little green screen for the pilots. Uh, and it said, beware any cockpit intrusion Two aircraft hit World Trade Center. Um, and at that point, or several minutes later, Flight 93's pilot uh, at 926 responded, Ed, confirm latest message, please, Jason. Um, and that would be one of the last, that would be the last coherent message from the pilots of Flight 93. Um, 
Were they the ones uh, who were screaming "Mayday" when the cockpit yes. got breached? Yeah, I've heard. Nine twenty-eight. You can hear the, the the hijackers breach the cockpit and they scream "Mayday, Mayday, we're all going to die" or something to that effect. Yeah. Um, and air traffic control heard that, and they already knew something was up. So other aircraft on the frequency heard that and knew, like, "Oh shit, there's another one." Yeah. Uh, there's no other way to say it. They are they. When somebody listens to that audio, you're li- you're hearing them being killed. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You can hear um, it in their voice. You can hear it in their voices, and um, and you can tell that they were aware of what was happening. They weren't just like, "Oh God, someone's stabbing me." It was like they knew what they were fighting for in that moment. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why they fought back harder than a lot of the other. I don't know how hard the other pilots fought back. I don't mean to put them down i'm just saying i think that's why we heard more from the flight 93 pilots because they realized they needed to get a message out desperately even if it was the last thing they did they realized those hijackers were not going to let them stay alive about 20 minutes after or 10 minutes after the message was sent to flight 93 and about 10 minutes after the aircraft was hijacked as well flight 77 crashed into the west side of the pentagon um the pentagon got extremely lucky that day because there are five sides of the Pentagon, obviously, and uh, they were remodeling it, and they were strengthening it, and building up more security features, and they had just finished that first segment, like a day before, when a plane flew into it. Now, if the plane had flown into any other side of the Pentagon, it probably would have gone through the courtyard and into the other side of the building. Oh my god. Uh, Yeah. So they got very lucky that day. Wow. I want to... I want to backtrack just a little bit um, and then pick right back up where uh, where you were talking about. So all over the world, people are watching this happen. All over the world, people are watching on TV. They see the second plane hit the second tower. They're like, oh, my God, this is not an accident. And then later on, they, they're watching live. Pentagon gets hit. And it wasn't like the World Trade Center where there was the dramatic video. It was like. In the ticker, the Pentagon had been hit, and then they they said, we want to go live now to video from Washington, D.C., and it was like the Pentagon in the distance with smoke coming out of it. And yeah. I was just like, and, and at that point, everybody kind of started to lose their shit. Um, Dick Cheney was taken to the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, which is underneath the White House's East Wing, mm-hmm. um, a minute before Flight 77 crashed. Um, but... People started to lose their shit. There were reports of a car bomb at the State Department. There were reports of car bombs everywhere. I remember watching on CNN, car bomb at State Department, bombing here. Wow. Yeah, and it just seemed like everything was coming unglued, you know? Everybody was panicking. Uh, Yeah, everyone was panicking, and they were over-reporting things. I'd hear a car backfire, reported as a bombing, things like that. Like, at this point, literally the only people in the world who are happy right now are Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Right. I mean, people around the world were horrified because terrorism is pretty unpopular. I mean, that's something that a lot of people in the U.S. might struggle to understand. But, like, even countries that hate us don't like it when terrorists attack us. Yeah. You know, it's not – it's civilians. Civilians are civilians, and most people can recognize that. So while um, Osama bin Laden is watching all this happen on TV – earlier, you know, when the first plane hit the first tower, his guys were cheering. He's like, hey, hey, there's more to come. Don't don't get too excited yet. At this point, when he sees the second plane hit the second tower, that's when he feels like he has succeeded. He's pulled off his trademark. Multiple simultaneous spectacular attacks. We've seen this before, like with the embassy bombings in 1998. 
So when the second plane hits the second tower, that's when he loses his shit. Even Bin Laden's celebrating. He's got tears in his eyes. He's Lawrence Wright says in The Looming Tower that he started weeping and praying. But then he pulls himself back together and he's like, hey, guys, wait, wait, wait. There's more to come. And he holds up three fingers. Minutes after that, the third plane hits the Pentagon. And once again, Bin Laden's followers are shocked. Just like, oh my God, we have ne- there has never been an attack this unbelievable pulled off before. But Bin Laden, he's like, mm-mm. He holds up four fingers. He's like the <laughs> Billy Mays effort. He's <laughs> got more to sell you. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Exactly. So at 9.45, following the crash, the, the, the hijackings and crashings of the first three aircraft and the hijacking of Flight 93, um, for the fourth time in history, but the first unplanned time in history, the previous three had been military operations, the FAA suspends all aircraft in the U.S., orders all aircraft out of the sky immediately, and shuts U.S. airspace to all incoming aircraft, which did a number of things. One, it cleared airspace really quickly. Um, the other thing that, another thing that took place was a lot of aircraft coming to the U.S. were broadcast, uh, they, they received messages about the hijackings or news about the hijackings, and they were told, you know, hijackings in progress, um, secure your cockpits, U.S. airspace is closed. So to a lot of planes, they just landed at the nearest airport or they turned around, but to some cross-Pacific aircraft, you know, trans-Pacific aircraft, they couldn't really turn around, and Hawaii was their best bet, but Hawaii is a U.S. airspace. Mm. So um, there were several aircraft approaching the west coast of the U.S. that took it upon themselves to turn their transponders to the hijack code. The code that you turn your transponder to discreetly if you've been hijacked. The pilots later said, no, we were trying to say we've acknowledged your message about the hijackings. But that's the worst way to acknowledge yeah. a message about a hijacking. Like, that is... There are so many better ways... <laughs> to acknowledge that you got that message other than saying, I've been hijacked. Um, And so air traffic control sees like six planes that are broadcasting hijack all of a sudden coming in from the Pacific. They start to freak out even more. Um, It's like walking into a gun range wearing a target. Essentially, yeah. Um, Operation Yellow Ribbon was was launched at this point, which was an FAA and uh, U.S.-Canadian operation to secure U.S. and Canadian airspace. and so the, the Royal Canadian Air Force started flying combat air patrols over Canadian air, uh, airspace and in some cases over U.S. airspace while U.S. aircraft scrambled. Um, and so that was significant. That was a big deal because, I mean, personally it was a big deal because I'm an airplane nerd. But it was also a big deal for America because, like, the previous suspensions of air travel, like I said, had been planned in advance and they took place in the 60s when, like, not that many people were flying. Oh. This is very different. Right. Yeah. This is very different. And personally, I lived in the flight path for Portland Airport in Oregon. Um, and so I remember the weeks after September 11th, the sky was silent. Wow. I wouldn't hear aircraft flying over every day, with the exception of military aircraft, which were significantly louder than commercial aircraft. You'd hear them a couple times a day, but there weren't airliners flying over all day. And that was that was peculiar to me. We're only like a couple hours into one of the worst days in history. And people can already tell that that this is a uniquely horrible day. This is, the world is changing in front of them. 
our idea of America and what happens in this country is changing as in, in real time. Up before today, people thought, you know, terrorism, that happens over there. It doesn't happen over here. Suddenly it's happening over here. And like, and like you're saying, Aram, please tell me if I said your name wrong. <laughs> Aram, but it's, it's Aram. So, so like you're saying, Aram, you know, you have all these unprecedented things going on and Americans are just shocked. And it's in this shocking, panicked time that the people we call first responders, you know, firefighters, paramedics, police officers, anything you can think of, they're being called for service that is above and beyond what they signed up for. But yeah, I mean, a lot of, uh, I mean, first responders are trained to, to deal with a lot of terrible things, but, but they weren't trained for the scale of that day. I mean, nobody was, nobody could be trained for the scale of that day. It's just, yeah. it wasn't, even now that we've seen it, you can't train for something on, uh, on that scale. Um, and so, uh, the FDNY fire department in New York responded very heavily. Most, most of the stations self-responded. They saw what was happening and they just drove on down. And it also happened, the attack happened right during a shift change with the FDNY. So Ooh. the night shift was leaving while the day shift was coming in. So they had double crews on most of the engines. All the, the whole crew went, you know, both, both, both teams went. Um, at about 9.51, so we're talking six minutes after FAA shuts down airspace, um, a fire marshal by the name of Ronald Bucca, or Buka reached the 77th floor, 78th floor of the South Tower, the Sky Lobby, and he will become significant later on in the world as when American soldiers invaded Iraq, oh. they believed they were doing so in response to 9-11, and so they named a detention facility after this this fire marshal. Uh, oh, Camp we're Boca. definitely talking about that place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, a, a few minutes later, uh, after um, a few minutes after FAA airspace was shut down, um, it wasn't shut down to every aircraft. Of course, there were military aircraft in the sky, um, and Air Force One was in the sky. Air Force One took off uh, right before 10 o'clock. Um, nobody knew where they were going. They didn't have any plans because they didn't know how big the attack was. They just said, get the president up in the sky at 40,000 feet. That's where he'll be safe. Wow. So nobody can get him at 40,000 feet. And if there's another terrorist in a plane, you're going to see him coming for a while if you're up at that altitude. You know? Yeah. Um, so, so, that's why, so that's why they got Bush on Air Force One within an hour after the two planes crashed. Right. Um, right before, right as the Air Force One is taking off, the passengers on board Flight 93 start their revolt. Um, and so that happened for a number of reasons. One, like we said, Flight 93 took off later. So when passengers on Flight 93 called people on the ground with the airphones, people on the ground told them what was happening in New York and told them, like, you've got to do something. Like, this, you're not going to be, they're not going to let you live. They're not going to let you go. And so that's why the passengers rose up, was because they realized that was it. Um, yeah. And so they begin their revolt. Um, and right before 10 o'clock, the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapsed, uh, 56 minutes after being struck. And I remember, like I said, I was about to walk out the school, out the door towards school when that happened. I just remember the TV going silent. 
Like, I've seen a lot of footage since then of, of reporters freaking out. I don't remember what station I was watching, but I just remember the guy was talking, and he just stopped mid-sentence, and you just couldn't hear anything. And it was just, like, 30 seconds of dead air, because, like, nobody knew what to say. Nobody knew, knew what to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the first official FDNY victim of 9-11 was uh, a chaplain, an FDNY chaplain, Father Michael Judge. Um, and he was killed as the South Tower collapsed. Um, a piece of debris struck him in the head and killed him. He is known as Victim 0001 of the 9-11 attacks. Um, and he was very well loved within the FDNY. He knew a lot of people. A lot of firefighters looked up to him. Um, and he was always there for people. He was always the first one on scene when something tragic happened. And so a lot of firefighters have... Um, found solace in the thought that um, or in the idea that he died first so he could lead the way to heaven for all the other firefighters who died later that day. Um, and I'm not particularly religious, but I think that the, um, the imagery there and the emotion there is something that you don't have to be religious to understand. Yeah. You know, it, it's not about Jesus, Christian heaven. It's just the idea of the afterlife you know, he's welcoming them into the afterlife, whatever, whatever you believe, that's where he was, you know. Um, and so I think that that's pretty significant. Um, the, a, a minute later, um, the FDN, FDNY battalion chief, Joseph Pfeiffer, who is in the North Tower, orders uh, all FDNY personnel to evacuate the area. Um, and if you're like me, you might wonder the first time you hear that, why in the hell a battalion chief was ordering the entire FDNY around? And the answer to that is because the FDNY senior personnel had headquartered themselves inside the South Tower when the North wow. Tower was struck. So the top like three or four officials within the FDNY, including the chief of the department, were killed when the South Tower collapsed. Um, so the FD FDNY was decapitated. Oh my god. Um, it was, yeah, and that's what I mean by there's no planning for an emergency of this scale. I am certified by uh, FEMA as an emergency responder for certain disasters, and we war, you know, we, we do war game exercises, tabletop exercises for disasters, but under no circumstances do they ever say, okay, pretend the fire chief is dead and the two biggest buildings in your city are on fire. And that's just not, because you can't prepare for that. Yeah. There's no funding that can prepare you for that. There's no training that can prepare you for that, you know? Uh, and so I want to stress that it was a truly unprecedented day. Um, and I stress that because inevitably something bad will happen to America again, and it will be equally unprecedented, and it will be equally un we won't be able to prepare for it. And I hope that our response is more reasoned than our response to 9-11 was. Um, I would hope we can learn that from the lessons of 9-11, but I'm not sure we will. Um, the I remember watching on CNN um, after the tower collapsed, they started freaking out and evacuating big buildings all over the country. Sears Tower was evacuated. My dad uh, said that some of the bigger buildings in Portland were evacuated, including the World Trade Center in Portland. Um, my dad worked in a five-story building, so he was not evacuated. But I remember the hysteria in my elementary school. There were kids whose parents came and picked them up that day. And I remember parents talking about, like, well, we don't know if another plane isn't on the way, and it could strike the school. 
And even in fifth grade, I wanted to laugh at them because I was like, no, Bin Laden or whoever it is, the bad guys, I didn't know it was Bin Laden. I said, the bad guys, they're not coming after Oregon. Yeah. They're not coming after Karis Elementary School in rural Oregon to kill 300 elementary schoolers. Like, that's not, not going to happen. You're pretty safe here. Um, but, you know, there's memes these days about how, like, the same people who, who freak out about the virus or think the virus is a hoax also believe that ISIS and Al-Qaeda were going to attack their local Denny's. I mean, people really did believe that Al-Qaeda was here to hit them because, like I said earlier, America hadn't been attacked since Pearl Harbor on our own soil. And so they hit the World Trade Center. They could hit our city, too. You know, it, it was like this panic moment. Um, I want to backtrack a little bit and uh, hit up a couple more points before we uh, before we close out. Why did the buildings collapse? And then that could kind of segue into talking about the um, the people who were trapped inside and why some of them, unfortunately, had to choose between falling or burning to death before the towers collapsed. Yeah. Um, so the um, well, first I want to go over the, there was one more aircraft in the sky that's Flight ninety three. Right. And so the passenger revolt takes place on Flight ninety three, and they end up storming the cockpit. And the hijackers realized that they weren't going to be able to control the plane for much longer. And so they flipped it over and crashed it into the ground outside Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Um, and the first responders thought that it was like a small plane crash when they would gotten the call. So it was like the local volunteer fire department that rolled up. And they said there was just nothing left. There was just a hole wow. in the ground. Because the plane Normally when a plane crashes, the pilot's trying to keep it from crashing. Yeah. So it kind of skids along the ground. They don't normally fly it straight into the ground. Yeah. You know? Um so Flight 93 was, was thought to be heading toward the White House or the Capitol building. We don't really know which one it was going to strike, but um, those passengers saved a lot of lives that day. Yeah. Um, and so while that's happening, the South Tower of the World Trade Center has just collapsed. There are people trapped above the flames in the North Tower, and they're increasingly desperate. Uh, the fire is getting hotter and hotter. Uh, the building has started to deteriorate. And they've just witnessed, if they're on a certain side of the building, they've just witnessed the South Tower collapse completely, right? So they know what's likely to happen to them. Um, and around this time, we started seeing, like you were talking about, the photos of people falling from the buildings, jumping from the buildings. People smashing the windows and jumping out because um, they had no choice. They had no hope. It was jump or stay behind and slowly succumb to smoke and fire. You know, um, neither of those are great options. And um, and to bring it into 2021, that desperation is not unique to New Yorkers or to Americans or to 9-11. Um, a week ago, we witnessed desperate young Afghans clinging to the wheels of American transport planes and falling hundreds, thousands of feet to their death. I couldn't help but think of the people falling out of the World Trade Center when I saw that. I couldn't help but but be reminiscent of that that yeah. sheer desperation that I can't understand because I've never lived in a situation like that. I can kind of get it, but I can't really accept it because how could you until yeah. you're in that moment, you know? Um, and so the desperation in the buildings w was growing um, because a lot of people realized they couldn't get down. The elevators were all cut because the World Trade Center isn't like a traditional office building where there are supports and columns all throughout the building that kind of hold it together. The World Trade Center was designed to maximize office space. So the core of the building is where all the elevators and all the communications equipment were. 
and all of the supports were for the building. So when an aircraft flew through the core of the building and cut it, they, it is essentially cutting the spinal cord of the building and then pouring jet fuel into the spinal cord. Um, burning jet fuel. Burning jet fuel into the spinal cord, right. Um, and so... Basically lava. Uh, right. And so what happened was there's the, the meme that we've all heard, jet fuel can't melt steel beams. And it's true. Jet fuel in an open fire cannot turn a steel beam into liquid. It doesn't need to. Fire heats steel and makes it weaker. And as that steel got weaker and weaker, the building, the floors in the top top levels of the building started to sag. And eventually one of those floors gave way. And when it did so, it collapsed onto the floor below it, which collapsed onto the floor below that, and then below that, and a rapidly increasing cascade of collapses, which brought the building down. Now, there are some conspiracy theorists who will tell you the building collapsed in on itself. Um, it didn't. And if you look at the video of it, you can see that it doesn't. It falls to the side slightly. Um, but on a personal level, I visited New York City in 2004, and Ground Zero was a hole in the ground, and all the buildings around it still had gashes in them from where parts of the World Trade Center had struck them. Damn. And this was three years later. So the buildings did not collapse in on themselves. They 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 just took out a couple city blocks, you know. Um, it was just the scale of the buildings makes it look like, oh, that, that's a controlled demolition without realizing, holy shit, that's a giant building falling down. That's an aircraft carrier falling down in Manhattan. Yeah. You know? Um, that's a great point. I mean, people, we, we don't emphasize nearly enough just how badly damaged the surrounding area was. And that's another thing is there's these conspiracy theories about Building 7, you know, how World Trade Center 7 wasn't struck. How did it collapse? I'll tell you how it collapsed. The two biggest buildings in the world fell on it. Yeah. It's a miracle That's it didn't collapse good... faster. Right. And and people say, well, the FDNY pulled out of the building. They said, everybody get out. It's going to collapse. And it's like, yeah, it's because you take a cursory glance at the building and you can say, hey, oh, that building's going to collapse. Yeah. Especially can... after two other ones just had. Yeah. You can literally hear it cracking. Right. <laughs> so, like, I would stay out of that. Like, Let's get the hell out of here. Right. The North Tower collapsed at about 1028, and about a minute later, the vice president communicated shoot-down authority to the aircraft and in, in the fighter jets in the air. They were they were told, yeah, shoot-down authority with any additional hijacked aircraft. Um, the famous Dick Cheney quote. You have authorization to shoot down any aircraft deemed a threat. The famous Dick Cheney quote. Um, and uh, just before 11 o'clock, Donald Rumsfeld placed the U.S. military at DEFCON 3, and ordered Cheyenne Mountain, the U.S. command and control facility, to lock down for the first time in its history. Because, that was, because again, nobody knew how big that day was going to be. Um, so by this point, the Pentagon has been struck. Flight 93 is down on the ground, and both towers are down. We now know, with retrospect, that the day was done. At the time, they did not know that. Um, and so the day was still a panicky day for many hours afterward for a lot of the people involved. Because they had to make sure every aircraft was down and that airspace was closed. Sorry to interrupt. But, is is this when um, the pilots that were still in the air heard the message that if they didn't land, they were basically going to get shot down? Yes. Yes. That, that's when they were told. Or when, they, when they heard that the military had shoot down authority. Um, so effectively what had happened was the Air National Guard had scrambled aircraft who were on a military frequency that's encrypted. And normally they talk to military air traffic control, but on this day they were being vectored by civilian air traffic control who didn't have the ability to communicate with them on an encrypted channel. So they broadcast over open air traffic control frequencies 
this message essentially giving the aircraft shoot-down authority. So if I was a pilot in the sky at that point, I would have found a place to land extremely quickly. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, I'm not messing with that. Um, yeah. One thing that's interesting to note is that the airbase that scrambled uh, F-16s, Langley Air Base scrambled three F-16s. Two of them were armed. One of them was completely unarmed. It wasn't designed to go into the air that day. Um, those pilots recognize that their sidewinder missiles could not likely bring down an airliner very quickly, and especially the pilot of the third F-16 that was unarmed, they were prepared to ram an aircraft out of the sky. Yeah. Um, Just the desperation of that day, you know, I think it's 20 years later, hard to remember just the panic, the fear. It's very clinical now. Um, Yeah, I've heard that pilot talk about that when she was in her plane, and they thought they were going to have to take out Flight 93 somehow. I mean, she was thinking, I mean, we know that we're being attacked. We know that it's Al-Qaeda flying planes into important buildings. And, I mean, it really, I think it says a lot about both her as a person and also a lot about the U.S. Air Force. Or I can't remember if she was Air Force or Air National Guard, but she was she was willing to fly her own jet to stop Flight 93 from being flown into, like, the White House or Capitol Hill. Right, and I think that that's... Those are the two takeaways I'd like people to remember about September 11th, is one, remember the panic and the fear and the uncertainty, because inevitably when something happens again, we'll have all those experiences, and we need to learn to control those and not be reactionary in our responses. The other thing I'd like people to remember is that when shit hits the fan, more often than not, people turn into heroes. They don't turn into self-serving, greedy, get out of my way. Most people do everything they can to help people around them, from from office workers in the World Trade Center to firefighters responding to the people in Flight 93. Um, it was pretty universal. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll close out the day with a, a description of an event. Um, as After the World Trade Center had collapsed, you had talked about the smoke trail earlier from, from the attack. When it collapsed, the dust trail was so long and so prominent that if you look on Google Maps or Google Earth and you go back to September 11, 2001, you can see the smoke trail across, right? Um, an astronaut was on board the International Space Station all alone. He was the only guy up there. And he radioed Earth as his aircraft came into communication with, with um, the United States. He said, hey, guys, how are you doing down there today? It's a beautiful day. And they said, you know, it's not so beautiful down here. We got this stuff going on, and they described him what was happening. And he looked out the window, and he could see the smoke trailing from New York City out into the ocean. Wow. And he realized that his nation was under attack at that moment. And so the next time the space station rotated around, he grabbed the highest-end camera he could, and he took pictures of every major city and, and studied them, looking for damage to the cities. Um, and so from people on Earth to a guy up in space, everybody was watching the events that Jeez. day. Jeez. So you could literally see the impact from space. That is how big this day was. Right. It was a major day. And I think that a lot of the uh, importance of that day is lost in the never forget rhetoric, the rah, rah, go America rhetoric. It was a very significant day. And there's a pushback these days. People want to say, oh, we overemphasize 9-11. We talk about it too much. I don't think we talk about it enough. I don't think we've ever had a national reckoning about 9-11. Um, and I think that that's caused a lot of our problems that we see today. I want to ask a quick question and, and then one last sort of more philosophical question. 
first, what, what, what's your response to when people say that Flight 93 was shot down? What, what's your response to that conspiracy theory? I've heard that from people who have access to certain information that I don't. However, I don't know how true it is. Because again, a Sidewinder missile would probably not bring down an airliner very quickly. I mean, it would go down. It would definitely crash. But you'd take out one of the two engines. And, and Sidewinders are designed to take out a fighter plane. Yeah. When the engines are in the fuselage. If engines are on the wing of an airliner, so you could take one of those engines out, or even both of them, and the thing turns into a giant glider, it would at least glide into the ground. It wouldn't have flown at the angle it did. So I don't think it was shot down. Um, and from what I've heard, the aircraft were just about to be close enough to shoot it down, but they weren't actually on station yet. Um, and so I don't know for sure. I think maybe we'll learn more than I know, but as it stands now, I don't think it was shot down. Yeah. Oh, hell. We forgot to hit up one point. We'll, we'll make this quick, but it is an important one. So the giant dust and smoke cloud at Ground Zero, it was also really toxic, too. It had, like, asbestos and other chemicals in it. Right. And, and that's something that a lot of Americans, I think, are not aware of, is that more first responders have died since 9-11 of, of illnesses related to the attacks than died during the attacks themselves. And that's not to say that a lot didn't die. I mean, 343 FDNY firefighters died on September 11th. You know, um, the FDNY has a tradition where they'll, they'll ring the bells at the fire stations when a firefighter dies. And the bells rang and rang and rang for hours afterward. Damn. Um, all across the city, you know. Um, and Manhattan was evacuated. That's the other thing is the dust cloud was so bad they evacuated Manhattan and it was the largest maritime evacuation since Dunkirk. Jeez. Um, the Coast Guard enlisted uh, fishing boats and regular you know pleasure boats and stuff like that to evacuate as many people as they could from Manhattan. Um, wow. And it was like a lieutenant in the Coast Guard who made that or gave that order too. It was like a low low level Coast Guardsman who was like, oh, time to be a hero, you know. Um, Evacuating Manhattan. I mean that that sounds like a movie. Right, it really does. Yeah. So ultimately, Aram, what would you say would be a real national reckoning for nine eleven? What would you want us to? What would you want to see take place? I um, I think it should terrorism, foreign policy should be something that we discuss more as Americans. It should be something that comes up during presidential debates. It should be something that people care about more. Um, and I think that a national reckoning would would have looked something to the effect of more public congressional hearings about why the attacks happened and more openness about it. Not a, a not this knee-jerk reaction to classify everything and declare a war on terrorism. Yeah. But what we should have done it is, is asked, why did this happen? What happened? Not why do they hate us? Mm-hmm. But why, how did we get here and how do we stop it from ever happening again? Um, yeah. I think that that's, that's an important thing to do is that we need to, um, I mean, 9-11 is still not something that's studied. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, there are movies about it and stuff, but how many schools have you heard of, high schools have you heard of that have a class that discusses 9-11? Yeah. You don't. Because it's too controversial, right? Um, and I know this because I, I taught a high school class the lessons of 9-11 a couple of years ago in 2016. And, uh, let me tell you, as somebody who experienced that day via TV, it was very weird to talk to people who were not alive when it happened. Uh, 
that have no memory of it. Because um, these kids said, yeah, I think like 10 buildings got hit. Like what? 10,000 people died or something. And like, it was the Iraqis. And I'm just like, oh my God, like, it's not your fault. You're wow. not dumb. They're not dumb. Like, it's totally not their fault. Nobody's ever told them these things. Oh my their God. Their parents haven't. Their teachers haven't. Nobody has taught them about this stuff. So they just pick it up from memes or whatever they hear, you know, and that's not their fault. They're just kids, but like, still sucks. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, Aram, thank you so, so much for coming on and joining us for this episode of the terror. I mean, the knowledge that you brought was critical. I, I could have talked and talked and talked, but man, you actually know this stuff. You, you know so much more about it than I do. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge. This has been a really important episode. And hopefully somebody who is too young to remember 9-11 can listen to this and hear we both have to say. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a, I was glad to be here. Um, as a final note, I would like to recommend if anybody wants to see news footage from that day, if they want to know what it was like to see the news around the world, archive.org has a understanding 9-11 page that shows you news footage from around the world during the events. It's extremely helpful for understanding the world, con the, for contextualizing the world response. Um, so that's a free resource for everybody. This has been episode one of The Terror, When Everything Changed, September 11th, 2001. In the next episode, we're going to go back in time and look at what led to all of this taking place. Our guest in this episode was Aram Shabanian. You can find his work at The Fulda Gap. He is currently a non-state actors researcher at the New Lines Institute. Before we go, I wanted to just say a couple more things about both the victims and the perpetrators of 9-11. The, the people who were photographed falling out of the buildings, they're often called jumpers, and some, some of them may have chosen to jump, but a lot of them probably unintentionally fell. They were trying one way or another to escape unimaginable fire and smoke. They could not stay in the building. They had no other choice. And there are, you can see pictures of people trying to cling to the ledge, to trying to cling to ledges. It, it's impossible to say how many people decided to let go versus how many people tried to hold on long enough for rescue and, I, and either slipped off or remained there until the buildings collapsed. Ultimately, the people who were on the floors where the planes hit or the flame or, or the floors above that, they all died. No one, no one on those floors survived. The people who either fell or jumped came from those floors. Nobody on the floors where jumpers fell from survived. As two journalists wrote for USA Today at the time, quote, They didn't choose whether or not to die. They were simply choosing how to die, unquote. So I don't want people to come away from this thinking that people committed suicide to avoid a painful 
death on 9-11. Maybe. Maybe a few people did. Maybe a few people decided, I don't want to burn. I'd rather just jump. Maybe there, there were probably some people who thought that way. But even still, it's better to think of them as murder victims than as victims of suicide. They did not go into the towers choosing to die. They went to the towers to go to work. And they found themselves in a situation where they and nearly 3,000 other people had no chance of escape. As for the perpetrators of 9-11, you have Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda. And you have one of his underlings, the guy who is in charge of putting together this whole thing, a former engineer known as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Even these guys were surprised by what happened. They thought they were just going to damage the buildings. They didn't think they could actually bring the towers down. Even they were surprised by what happened. And they were happy, of course. They wanted to kill tons of, of people. They wanted to slaughter innocents. That's the point of this sort of a terrorist attack. These people are terrorists. Even they were surprised by what happened both on September 11th and what happened afterward. They expected that they would terrorize America. And with that, they would get what they wanted. Instead, they killed far more people than they probably even intended to, which, of course, they had no problem with. But they didn't expect how we would respond. They did not expect the 20 years of global war that followed. In the next episode, we're going to trace what led up to 9-11. That's going to be the first half of this miniseries. The second half will focus on the 20 years afterward. The global war on terror has begun. In the next episode, we're going to look at what led to it.